Morning. So, Kristen, could have just read the book and been done, but I've already prepared something. We're going to go ahead. So I went off of Facebook Election Day 2016, not because Donald Trump won the presidency. I had decided weeks, possibly months before, I was going to leave Facebook and social media in general on Election Day to make a little statement, which no one heard probably, that I, uh, I have a great uh, dislike and I grieve greatly over how we as a nation and we as sisters and brothers in Christ treat one another during an election year cycle. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but we don't treat each other very well. It doesn't matter which candidate we're supporting. We don't treat each other very well. We say some, some things on, on social media sometimes that we would never say to a person face-to-face, or at least not say it in the same way. In an article that I've linked in the Bible app live event that we talk about, the article's entitled, entitled If You're Fighting the Culture War, You're Losing. The author, Cap Stewart, makes his case quite well. He says, when we see ourselves as waging a culture war, we employ tactics that we would normally, as followers of Jesus, would normally find indefensible. And he backs all of this up with Scripture. I'm not going to read all the little references to Scripture I want to read to you. You can go to the article and read it yourself. But, For example, he says, when when we engage in the culture wars, he says, we express outrage, outrage over every new infraction we see in the news or on social media, forgetting that we are neither to give in so easily to anger nor to imitate the, evil, the evils of outrage culture, cancel culture, or victim culture. He says, we, we fight and quarrel with our opponents, forgetting that such skirmishes stem from selfish motives and that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone. We mock those in opposition to us using the popular rhetoric of sarcastic memes, name-calling, and condescending language, forgetting that we are to communicate with gentleness and respect and to walk in wisdom toward outsiders by letting our speech always be gracious. And on top of all of that, the harsh reality, friends, is that Google and Facebook and Twitter and the like are governed by algorithms that are designed to make those companies rich. And how do they make those companies rich? They make it by getting people to engage with their platforms. And how do people engage in the platforms? What is the best way to engage people in these platforms? Outrage. Outrage. That's the best, most successful way to engage people in these platforms. Social media is designed to turn us into people Jesus doesn't want us to become. I got back on Facebook during the pandemic simply to stay in touch with people, but you will rarely see me post anything there. I'm also on Instagram, too, but I mostly post pictures of my dogs. So for some reason, they love it after I come back from a run. I can't figure out what that is. And so much of what governs the worst of our behavior during an election year or any time, really, is fear. It's fear. And so in the coming weeks... We're going to try to substantiate that statement, back it up with some good data, and seek to direct our hearts to a better, more biblical way of living and interacting with the world around important issues, even with our enemies. That's why we're launching the series Love Over Fear. We want to discover a better way, a kingdom way of living during a time when our nation, some would say, is the most divided it's been in decades, or at the very least, 
we're more aware of it. It's always been the case all along. And all of what we're going to cover in the next 10 weeks is grounded in the glorious, brilliant, scandalous love of God for us all. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Romans 5.8 adds, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. On the heels of that one, Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Now, a mashup of all three of these verses gives us the one good news statement that we're going to use for the entire ten weeks. Normally, I have one, a new one for you every week. This is easy. One good news statement that will last the entire ten weeks. It's this. While we were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. While we were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. Each Week in the next 10 weeks, we'll take the themes and the biblical passages that come from the book by Dan White Jr., Love Over Fear, Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World. We'll do one chapter a week. This week, we're only covering the forward and the introduction. We have groups set up. Those are pretty much all set up and going now. But if you have decided you would still like to be involved in a discussion of this, our Sunday morning Christian formation class on Zoom is now discussing this book. So if you want to jump in on that, you can. You can simply go to our website, ecclife.net slash Zoom, and the Christian Formation Hour is right there. You're welcome to join at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. This morning's passage is from Romans 15, which you just heard read. And the first paragraphs of the introduction to Dan, uh, Dan White tells the story of two separate events that happened to him in one month. First, a woman who was dear to him came to him one Sunday and said, I have to leave the church. She said she's she's leaving because she has decided she doesn't feel safe knowing, quote, there are liberals here who believe so differently than me. Dan tried to convince her that this could be a safe place for her, but she left anyway. Just a couple weeks later, he says, another couple came to him from the opposite point of view. Dan, they said, we're we're not sure we will ever feel settled here with people who hold such conservative positions. We need a church to take sides on these types of issues. And once again, Dan tried to convince him to stay, but they left. He wanted it to be a safe place for both conservatives and liberals and everything in between, but they left in search of a more progressive church. The same thing has happened to me at ECC, within about two weeks of each other. That and the fact that we are not alone in these struggles is why this sermon series and the content of the book and the passages it is built around are so important and so timely and so vital. So I hope to whatever degree you are able, you will dive in with us on this journey. The Apostle Paul and Christ care very much not only about saving individuals, but also about creating a people, a community of people who will live a kingdom kingdom of God way in the world and, and partner with God in his mission. The Apostle Paul and Christ care not only about saving individuals, but about creating a people who will live in the world in a kingdom of God kind of way and partner with God in his mission. But as is the case today, the people of ancient Rome were divided. They were divided by ethnicity, by politics, by culture, 
and by theology. In other words, they were divided by some of the same types of things that divide us today. So what happens in this text in Romans and what will happen in all of the texts that we will look at in this series will have an immediate consequence and parallels and application for our cultural moment as well. The church in Rome likely got started as Jews from Rome, maybe went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for a, for a holiday or for a festival. And while there, they perhaps encountered other Jewish people who had become followers of Jesus, so they were convinced that they too wanted to, that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And so they then took this faith, they brought it back to Rome, into their synagogue communities, where most of the communities would have been Jewish people worshiping, but there were also what were called God-fearers, Gentiles, non-Jews, who had chosen to worship the God of the Jews. And these people began to come to faith. And as they did, both Jews and Gentiles coming to faith, the community became more diverse, consisting of more and more Gentiles, which likely caused some tensions in the community. Add to this the reality that leading Jewish Christians were evicted from the city of Rome by a government decree in 49 AD. They were gone for a few years, and when they returned back to Rome, they would have found a very different church than what they had left behind. Suddenly, what had previously been a very Jewish way of worshiping, even in a Christian context, became much more Gentile in their absence. It would be the same as if suddenly most of us were forced to leave Lafayette for a couple of years, and while we were gone, revival broke out in the Asian community, or the African-American community, or the Latinx community, and they began to worship at ECC. And when we came back, we might discover a worship style and a way of doing things that's very different than what we left. We, we might even say, it doesn't even feel like ECC anymore. There would be tension. There would be possible division. So it was with the church in Rome. It's fair to say, then, that Paul is dealing with a universal and timeless problem that can be faced by any faith community at any time where both so-called liberals and conservatives come together. They have to learn to see themselves as one body even when they don't all agree on everything. They have to learn to understand themselves and each other as needing one another. So much of what Paul wants to accomplish in his letter to the Romans has to do with helping these two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And by the way, just to have it fixed in your head, we're all, all, the whole world is either Jewish or Gentile, right? Jewish is Jewish, and everybody else is Gentile. Paul wants these two groups to come together to love, accept, and welcome one another. Much of what it means for us to practice love over fear has to do with our ECC touchstone of welcome. We want to become a people, a community, a place of hospitality, grace, and community for all people. Paul begins to sum up much of what he's been trying to say about these things in in chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not not to please ourselves. Paul divides people into two groups, the strong and the weak. The strong are, for the most part, the Roman Christians in that church. The weak are the Jewish Christians, for the most part. The word used for strong here is more literally the powerful ones. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up thinking that what Paul was talking about here was those who are strong in the faith, those who are weak in the faith. But, and while Paul may do that in another book, I think in Corinthians, here there's a really good possibility that's not how he's using it. He's referring the strong are the powerful ones, those who had socioeconomic, political, and even possibly numeric superiority. They were more of them. They were the majority culture. 
they had more power, more privilege than anyone else. They, they need to use this advantage to serve those who do not have these things, the weak. We who are strong should use our advantage to bear with the failings of the weak, Paul says, not to please ourselves. Paul uh, uses the word, or the, the word translated here is, is, is failings. You have to bear with their failings. It's better translated simply as weaknesses. The old Good News Bible actually does it that way. These aren't moral failings. These aren't places where those who are weak fall short. They're simply the realities, the reality that, that is being faced by those who, in society who, who do not have the power. They do not have the voice. They don't have the position that those who are strong have. We who are strong have an obligation to support and help those who are powerless. Then in verse 2, Paul pushes this beyond fellow sisters and brothers in Christ, and he uses the word neighbors. To the faithful Jew, neighbors, the word neighbors most often meant fellow Jews. But Jesus took that and pushed it and blew it wide open. He says, no, neighbors refers to anybody else, even your enemies, regardless of what nation they come from, what religion they are. Paul writes in verse 2, each of us, the strong, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Each of us should please our neighbors. We are to be concerned about building up and supporting and strengthening the disadvantaged, whether inside of the church or outside of the church. To put it another way, we are to lay down our lives for those who are in need, just as Christ laid down his life for us when we were in need. We are to lay down our lives for others. Verse 3, even, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Paul borrows here from Psalm 69 words that he sees as ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus chooses to please God rather than himself. Likewise, we who are strong, Paul says, ought to please God as well. We do so by building up our weak neighbors, by doing good to them, even if it costs us something even if we must let go of some of our power and position in order to do so, for this is who Christ is. This is what God in Christ has done for us, and He has done so not by winning the culture war, but by dying on a cross. Here and again in verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, Paul uses words that uh, call to mind, for those of us who've done a little bit more reading this, call to mind his words from Philippians chapter 2. There he tells us we must have the same mindset as Christ Jesus in our relationships with one another. We must have the same mindset as Christ who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. This is who Jesus was. This is who we who are strong should be as well. Paul then moves on a little bit of a detour in which he speaks of one of the purposes of Scripture. He's just quoted from Psalm 69. Now he wants to remind us of how these things work. What do we do with Scripture? Verse 4. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Paul then uses the key words endurance and encouragement to point us back to Christ as our model in how we treat one another. Verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here again, Paul is drawing on Philippians 2. 
Philippians 2.2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Our unity with one another, however different we may be, ethnically, culturally, theologically, politically, our unity brings glory to God. Our unity brings glory to God. And with that, Paul swoops in to tell us what all of this means practically speaking. Now, because the the New International Version that I'm reading from softens this a bit, I'm going to adjust the translation and mix it with the New Revised Standard Version, and then I'm going to mess with the word order to match the Greek word order, so you get a better feel for how strong this is. Verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. All these things being true, if our unity brings glory to God, when you welcome and accept and love one another, that brings glory to God. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Our oneness of mind, our one voice, our unity brings glory to God, period. Not our uniformity, our unity. And then Paul buttresses his remarks with more about the nature and character of Christ. And then immediately following that, he calls on several passages from uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, to show that welcoming the Gentiles has always been God's plan. Verse 8, he switches to first person here. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, that all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, he's referring to Jesus here, will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In Him, the Gentiles will hope. Paul quotes from three major sections of the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, from the prophets, and from the writings, the poetry and the writings and wisdom. It's his way of saying that including the Gentiles and bringing unity between Jews and Gentiles has been God's plan throughout Scripture. It has always been there, and it is integral to what God is doing in the world. Am I about to faint or did the lights just go down? Okay, all right. As Ephesians 2 tells us, not only has God granted us salvation by grace through faith, not by any works that we could do, but He has also taken both Jews and Gentiles with all of their hostilities toward one another and He has made them into one people, or His phrase, one new humanity. We are no longer strangers and foreigners we are citizens of God's people. We are God's people. We are members of God's own household. Whatever makes us different from one another need not separate us from one another because ultimately love triumphs over fear. Do you believe that? Ultimately, the love of God in Christ Jesus triumphs over fear. And if it is true, and it is, if it is true that when you and I were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to himself, if that is true, then we who have received the love of God can be the love of God for others, even our enemies. If it is true that when you and I were God's enemies, 
God loved us and reconciled us to himself, then if we have received the love of God, we can be the love of God for others, even our enemies. Jesus prayed for this sort of thing in John 17. He prayed that we would be one with God and one with one another as followers. If we do this, he said, then the world will know that the Father loves us and sent the Son. And yet, we live in a divided time, an isolated time. We'd rather shout and shun those with whom we disagree. We'd rather burn bridges than build them. We'd rather lob grenades of harsh rhetoric than love them. We'd rather wall them out than welcome them into our lives and into the people of God as God in Christ has welcomed us. But we who have received the love of God can be the love of God for others. Even those who may be very different from us, theologically, culturally, ethnically, politically, even our enemies. In the forward to the book Love Over Fear, Deb Hirsch writes of something known by the acronym VUCA, V-U-C-A. It refers to four conditions that have come together to create a situation of mass anxiety, quoting her, the kind of which we, at least those of us living in the West, have not experienced for a long, long time. Those four letters in VUCA name our, our times, the era in which we live as volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. We live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous season. And I couldn't agree more with Deb Hirsch's assessment. The bizarre part is this book was published a year and a half ago. It's more true today than it was then. She also suggests this reality is complicated and amped up by how we use social media. She writes, quote, Everyone with a vague notion of anything and with a whole lot of angst can unleash their oft-times mean-spirited, even dangerous words. We are polarized against our friends, our families, and our neighbors. She and others I've read recommend taking breaks from cable news networks, all of them. Taking breaks from social media just to find some peace, just to recenter ourselves. One, One doctor I know even said to a patient who said he was struggling with anxiety, said, uh, what can you do? He said, I can give you a pill. Is a pill going to make me groggy? Yeah. He said, I want a pill. He said, well, then I have something else I've told other people. Stop watching the news. You want to get your news, you can get it another way. But if you're watching cable news, they're designed to make money. They don't make money if you're not enraged. In the introduction to the book, Dan White says, in my search for... In my search for solutions to the polarization we're caught in, I discovered that Jesus in the first century faced the same emotional, spiritual gridlock we are facing. Jesus inhabited a boiling crockpot of both progressives and conservatives. It's true, for real. It was thick and sticky and bitter. I wondered if there was a way, a peculiar way forward that Jesus carved out for this movement called Christianity. This was not a quaint exploration for me, he writes. The hostility we feel toward each other must be dismantled or it will destroy us. It might be the most pressing issue of our time. If we want to follow Paul's advice to the Romans, and we should by all means, then we must pursue unity with those who are different than we are, theologically, politically, culturally, ethnically, you name it. For that, Paul says, is how we bring glory to God. I don't invite you to take three next steps. All of these are in the Bible app. 
First, if you have not already done so, sign up for our daily scripture email. It comes Monday through Friday and again on Sunday morning, and all the passages are designed to lead you to where we're going to be worshiping and what we're going to be talking about. And then these next two steps, I, and you can do that through the communication card link in your, in your Bible app. These next two steps I, I challenge you to make uh, as a part of your life every week for the rest of the series, for the next 10 weeks. First, practice the daily discipline of stillness, solitude, and silence. Practice the daily discipline of stillness, solitude, and silence. That is, read a passage, perhaps the one that gets emailed to you from us, or another one that you have to be reading. Read it out loud two or three times. Read it slowly and prayerfully, and then sit in silence. Breathe slowly. Breathe prayerfully. Maybe there's a word or a phrase in the passage that sort of spoke to you. Let that be where you center your thoughts and reflect. Set a timer if you need to. Three minutes, five minutes. It's, I can tell you that it is one of the most helpful practices I engage in is the time I spend in silence almost every day. And finally, I invite you, I challenge you, this is the harder one, I challenge you, depending on who you are, it's harder. I strongly encourage you to take one day a week on which you fast from cable news and social media. One day a week, fasting from cable news and social media. From now until the end of this book series, Sunday, November 15th. Simply pick a day, and on that day, each week, steer clear of Facebook, Twitter, and whatever your go-to cable news network is. You will find, as I said, these ideas and questions for reflection and discussion in our Bible app live event. Just before we close in prayer, I'd like to close with two brief quotations. In his closing remarks, Cap Stewart writes in that article on the culture wars, he says, quote, As counterintuitive as it may seem, the fire of human hatred can only be overcome by the spark of divine love. The unassuming meekness of this love may appear weak and ineffectual, but it generates a supernatural yield more powerful than any earthly weapon we can wield. And finally, from a paragraph on the last page of the introduction to Love Over Fear, Dan White writes this. Fear is at the root of polarization, and it needs to be excavated to make room for the growth of love, the unsurpassable love of God. There is no comparison to the love displayed in the life of Jesus. This love is most glorious, most brilliant, most scandalous when it is poured out on those we are most frightened of. So this book is my journey of casting off fear to find the way of love. I welcome you all to that same journey of casting off fear, of casting off the culture wars, and finding the way of love. Would you pray with me as we close?